I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refuse. We talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. Uh, there's probably nothing more outside the mainstream seemingly at the current moment than to talk about progress and the idea that progress might actually be happening. Uh, and to talk about that, I have on today as a guest, uh, Jason Crawford, who is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and also somebody who has launched a new program for the study of progress and for convincing people that progress is happening. Thanks for coming on, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. So um, what I just want to start talking about is, is, you know, we did a podcast together. Actually, you invited me to do a podcast together a couple a year or two ago, talking about this issue of progress and why progress is important, why we should be talking about it. So I just want to talk about, go over that issue again and talk about why is it that you think it's important for people to be talking about progress and studying progress? Yeah. The simple fact is that progress is unappreciated, uh, or at least underappreciated. Um, too many people, I think, take it for granted and aren't really aware of, they, they aren't even aware of all the, the progress that has happened in the last couple of hundred years, the dramatic rise in global living standards that we, that we all now enjoy. And so people live in this amazing world where uh, you know half of children do not die before the age of five, where uh, we can you know travel around the world in safety and comfort, where we do not experience periodic famines, um, you know where we are not uh, have half of us doing backbreaking physical labor on farms, et cetera, and so forth, uh, and where we can open our refrigerators to get uh, fresh fruits and vegetables every morning, and where we can turn on hot you know. Uh, you know, running water from the tap, et cetera. And they, they, they simply don't know or remember. It's not, it's not vividly real to them, even if they might have a dim sense that this was not the world of just a one to 200 years ago. Um, and many of the things that we, that we enjoy, you know, we didn't even have a couple of decades ago. So, uh, you know, without this recognition and appreciation, I mean, first off, just as a, as a basic, you know, respect for history, I think we, we, you know, owe it to ourselves to understand, I mean, this is one of the greatest stories in all of human history, and I think we owe it to ourselves to, to understand it. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's funny, they say, uh, they say that those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, but uh, the, the problem in, with progress is that if you don't study history, you're going to fail to repeat it. Um, and you're going to, in fact, uh, perhaps lose the good thing that you have, right? So progress, one of the lessons of the history of progress is that it is not automatic or inevitable. In fact, for most of human history, it didn't happen, or it happened only, you know, very slowly and sporadically. It was only a couple hundred years ago that we really figured out the keys to progress and started making it happen. And so it doesn't happen really without choice and effort and focused attention and resources. And so if we don't continue to put those in uh, and put that investment in generation after generation, we're not going to continue to make uh, progress and we're going to stagnate again. Um, and, and I think if you, if you get this perspective that we are fantastically rich compared to our ancestors of just a few generations ago, then you realize that if we can keep this going, we in the future and our, and our descendants and future generations will be fantastically rich compared to where we are today. And once you recognize the possibility for that, I think you really, you, you can't let it go. You realize we have to keep this going. Right. I, I think that that perspective about how much progress has occurred, how rapidly it's occurred in the last couple hundred years is really the thing people are missing, which is it's really startling. Now, 
I don't want to overstate it because you know I, I made this argument um, with I, I once made this argument citing a graph of Warren Buffett's wealth, right? And if you look at Warren's Buffett Warren Buffett's wealth on a graph, it, it looks like he didn't really have much money until about age fifty, and then he got rich. And it's because it was going geometrically. So when you look at things in a geometric graph, the stuff that's at the left side of the graph, you know, which was still geometric, it doesn't look like much because it's so overwhelmed by the stuff that came later. So I think, you know, progress has been occurring through human history. If you look, you know, from the caveman up to today, it has been going at an increasing rate. But because it's that geometric growth, that, ge that geometric takeoff that happened with the Industrial Revolution, that it kicked it to such a higher level that whatever progress was occurring before then, which was real, seems small by comparison. So what is it really that, that accounts for that, the rapidity of that progress? What is it that we did right? What were the keys to the puzzle that we got that allowed us to progress so rapidly? Um, yeah, so that's true that exponential growth looks flat until, you know, the end of it. Um, you can actually, so you can correct for this somewhat on a graph by looking at a semi-log plot, right? So if you, if you look at the logarithmic um, plot on the y-axis against uh, regular, you know, x-axis of time, then exponential growth looks like a straight line. And if you plot a number of different metrics um, uh, related to progress uh, on a semi-log plot, you actually do see a, a knee in the curve around 1800-ish, I forget exactly where, um, and it's probably different for different metrics. So something actually did happen. Growth rates actually picked up. It wasn't just constant percentage growth year after year compounding. We actually um, kicked growth into a higher gear sometime a couple hundred years ago with the Industrial Revolution. Um, so as for what happened, there are a number of things. And, you know, I don't, I don't yet have a, a grand unified theory of human progress, but I can certainly point to a few themes. Um, I think maybe the most important was simply that we decided that progress was possible and uh, desirable. Um, this is actually not a view that we've had through most of human history. And uh, part of what got me onto this entire study was reading uh, Joel McKeer's book, A Culture of Growth, where he points this out. Um, if you want a good little summary, he's got an article from a few years ago in The Atlantic titled, Progress Isn't Natural. And uh, he points out that for, for most of human history, uh, people actually had sort of the opposite idea of progress. They had something he calls ancestor worship. The idea that uh, most people uh, you know, saw uh, our ancient ancestors as kind of the smartest and most accomplished people who ever lived. Uh, we, the moderns, can never surpass their achievements or their knowledge. Uh, in fact, all knowledge that matters was revealed to them in ancient texts, and all we really can do is read those texts and maybe get deeper and deeper levels of meaning out of them. Right. And, I, I remember the, the ancient Greek myth of the origin of man is that first they built men of gold and then they built men of silver. Then they melt, you know, and then finally you get down to the more corrupted lower level humans and that's us. Yeah. And this sort of <laughs> golden ageism that there's this glorious golden age in the past that we're living in its shadow, but we're, we're declined and, and shrunken remnant of that. And this is particularly somewhat understandable in Europe in particular, where there was a, an age that was more accomplished, and then there was something of a cultural decline for centuries. And so you can imagine someone in you know, AD 1000 or 1200 or so looking around and, and, and looking at the ruins of the Colosseum or the aqueducts or even the pyramids and thinking to themselves, wow, these people in the past really built some stuff. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, uh, oh, not to mention rediscovering the ancient texts, 
of, mm-hmm. uh, of the Greeks and the Romans and all the things that they knew. I mean, even, even practical matters, let alone, uh, you know, science, but practical matters like how to make uh, concrete that sets underwater, you know, was a thing that the Romans knew how to do. You mixed it with volcanic ash and those secrets were lost for a while and then sort of rediscovered. So um, quite understandable uh, from a certain perspective to think that, that the ancients kind of knew everything and that, and that we would never surpass them. But this view, uh, according to Mokir, started to change, uh, basically changed in the West between uh, around the 1500s and 1600s, roughly between Columbus and Newton. Um, so it was actually the voyages of discovery that were an early kind of crack in this, in this wall or foundation. Uh, going out and finding an entire new continent or two that the ancients didn't know about indicates right. that maybe not all the knowledge was revealed to them, um, you know, and not every, everything was out there in the texts. By the time you get around to Newton and his uh, system of the heavens and his explanation, his mathematical description of, of the motion of the planets and so forth, now you've really got something that has clearly surpassed any theory that the that the ancients had. And so from then you know, it was, it was kind of off to the races. Now we, we, there's this newfound confidence. Plus we had the philosophy of Francis Bacon telling us how to go do these things, you know, to, to make these discoveries through observation and experiment and also why to make them. Bacon said that this knowledge is going to lead to, um, you know, it, that there's going to be useful knowledge that it will lead to improvements in arts and manufactures and commerce. Um, and so, you know, that basic idea, again, I mean, Bacon, Bacon laid out this vision of almost the Industrial Revolution 200 years ahead of when it actually happened. One of the things I'm still trying to figure out is how everybody kept the faith, so to speak, or kept, you know, kept the, the, uh, kept the reason, perhaps, kept the confidence that this was going to work, even when there was little, in a certain sense, to show for it for a couple of hundred years. But they did. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, it did lead to the Industrial Revolution. And, and here we are. That wasn't the only factor, but I think that you know, just that very idea of progress is one of the big ones. Yeah, and I'm, I'm struck by the contrast to Aristotle uh, because, you know, here's a great scientist, many discoveries that he made, a, a belief in confidence in the power of reason, but he still didn't have this idea of progress. He, and he sort of looked, you know, maybe because he spent too much time with Plato, he kind of looked at, not, not, not the toy, not the kid's toy, but the philosopher, uh, who kind of looked down on, you know, the manufacturing and the mechanical arts as being, you know, beneath a, a philosopher's notice, that he never had that concept that, hey, you know, we could take this scientific knowledge and use it to do things that would dramatically improve our, our lives and maybe change the way people live entirely. Uh, so you know, yeah, I, had, that, that, uh, that is, I think you're right. That is a, it's a new idea with, with Bacon and with the Renaissance and then becomes adopted as the rallying cry of the Enlightenment. And then, boom, you know, it gets put into implementation and, and takes off. Um, but I also think there's, you what know, about this? You know, sort of actually, good. A, no, a note about that, actually. So I had an interesting conversation on that, that topic of why didn't the Greeks see that, you know, knowledge could be power? Uh, and I, and I, I sort of asked this question to uh, a philosophy professor who's stud, spent a good amount of time with the classics, somebody I think you know, a professor, Greg Salmieri, right. and he had an interesting point, which was the Greeks simply didn't realize how much knowledge was left to be discovered. They had a <laughs> sense, he told me, that the, uh, that, the, that the sciences were completable, and in fact that perhaps many of them were indeed nearly complete. 
Uh, you know, so uh, we've, you know, we've pretty much figured out uh, astronomy and, you know, biology is almost done and, uh, you know, and so forth. And so they, they simply had no idea. And so, you know, uh, biology could maybe, you know, so a carpenter, for instance, would know that there are different types of wood and what they're good for. A biologist would maybe explain why there are these different types of wood. But the biologist isn't going to add any knowledge that could possibly help the carpenter. What is the, you know, biologist is just kind of explaining some causes of things. And so they just, they simply had no idea that there was orders of magnitude more to explain that, that, that science could be mathematized, that you would have equations that would be helping the engineers. They just, they were just kind of um, oblivious to how much, to how much was left. Well, I think it's, it's kind of normal when you first start out at something, you're the first person doing it, or where you're first learning something that you don't know how much there is to know. Yeah. Um, now, but I think the other aspect of this is that once you have progress becomes the rallying cry and people actually try applying themselves to it, that once you start doing it, you learn how to do it. That that, that knowledge yes. builds on itself and the experience builds on itself, not just in terms of the scientific and technological knowledge, but also in the knowledge of how to build a business, how to gather, how to get, how to put together capital, how to build a factory, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. We get better at these things all the time, and we explicitly learn how to do them. Um, I mean, progress has all kinds of uh, ways in which it compounds on itself. Uh, really, uh, and I think where you get the exponential growth from is the fact that so much, so many things that we do, um, so many, so many innovations and, and so much of the progress that we make reinforces uh, other areas. So, uh, you know, if you look at sort of the early industrial revolution and some of the, uh, the classic kind of uh, industries that were going on at the time, look, for instance, at steel, uh, steam, uh, steam engines, uh, trains and railroads and coal, right? These are kind of some of the big things going on in 17, late 1700s, you know, Britain. All of those things basically reinforce each other, right? So, so the coal was used to power the steam engines, which of course drove the trains. The coal also was used for smelting of iron um, and, and turning it into steel. The steel was used to make the steam engines and to make the trains. Uh, the trains were carrying coal and iron ore, you know, all around uh, to different places. Um, the steam engines were used to pump water out of the coal mines to get, to, you know, to get more coal. So all of these things uh, just, just compounded on each other and you got this, uh, you know, virtuous cycle, this, this kind of reinforcing cycle. Um, and then, you know, you were just pointing out that also even at the level of knowledge. Um, so again, to go back to uh, Joel Mokir, who I think is really good and fascinating on, these, on many of these topics, um, you know, he points out that it wasn't only the growth of knowledge that was sort of going on in the, uh, what he calls the industrial enlightenment, sort of the connection of the enlightenment to the industrial revolution. Um, it was also the dissemination of knowledge. So the fact that we got, now this is back in the 1400s, we got the printing press, and we could now print more books and disseminate them. Um, and, and as time went on, there grew not only the technology to distribute knowledge, but also there became markets for knowledge. Um, so people would, uh, it's funny, today we think about, uh, you know, where do you go to learn to be an engineer today? You go to university. Was not always the case. Um, the modern research university is actually a paradigm that was basically invented in 19th century Germany and not uh, exported to the America until the late 1800s. Um, it was so, you know, today university is where you go. But back in the 1700s, you know, if you were, especially if you were in Britain, 
where you would go to learn engineering principles is you would buy books and pamphlets and uh, and maybe you would attend lectures and so forth but it was it was less formal it was outside of these systems and so even the growth of the markets for such a thing as a technical engineering pamphlet the fact that people artisans and mechanics would go buy these pamphlets to learn how does a steam engine work or how do I build a bridge you know this this, this kind of thing um, even that was a new development so so yeah these structures and and yeah, I think some of these structures are, are a little invisible and unappreciated but they absolutely um, they happen and they contribute and you know I think today with the the growth of the internet and the fact that now all the knowledge that you need to go learn how to code or uh, or even teach yourself biology and genetic engineering not to mention all the wisdom of how to start a business um, within the, you know, you noted before I, before I kind of went full-time on progress stuff, um, I, my career was in Silicon Valley as a tech entrepreneur. Right. Um, in the last 15 years or so, the amount of knowledge about how to start a tech startup has absolutely exploded. It used to be there's almost nothing. You had to go learn it from the people who were doing it. Then uh, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists started blogging. And now there's entire, you know, online libraries dedicated to uh, talks and articles and there are books and there's like all of the things you could possibly want to know, all the wisdom about how to do a startup, at least in the tech world is, is just out there. Mark Andreessen said something like, you know, a kid in the, in a 15 year old in Africa, as long as he's got a cell phone with an internet connection where he can access blogs, has more access to how to do a startup than Andreessen himself did at University of Illinois, you know, in 1990. Or whatever it was. Right. I, I remember a while back I talked to uh, Blake Scholl, who's doing, you know, came from Silicon Valley and is now trying to create a, a company to build a, a, a supersonic airliner, you know, get back right. in the supersonic airliner business. And um, he talked about that, that, you know, there's this tremendous, you know, what do you, one thing you could bring from Silicon Valley to something that's not a tech, not a Silicon Valley, not a, a you know, more of a, you know, making at a physical object rather than bits and programs. Um, but he says, you know, one of the things you could bring from that is all this knowledge of how to raise capital and how to start, how to make a startup and how to, how to get a new business together. And it, it's amazing how that, that builds and it becomes so much more, so much easier to do. Um, you know, I, I've seen that in now my somewhat different thing in the publishing industry, how much, you know, how much I, I used to be people say, I want to become a writer. And, you know, well, now there's no, I want to become a writer. Start, you know, you just start a website, you, 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 you get a Substack newsletter or whatever. Um, even Substack is a great example because, you know, I, 10 years ago, I was looking for how do I create a platform for a subscription-based newsletter? And I basically had to cobble it together on my own with like PayPal connected to this and connected to that. And now, of course, people just, oh, that's Substack. They do that now. Right. And, and, you know, yep, for a small, exactly. they can take a small fee and I don't want to have to pay that. But, you know, if, we, if I were doing it now, I'd just go through that. So yep. it's interesting how all these little problems, these technological problems you're looking for, if you're trying to create a business or start a newsletter or do something like that, there are so many different solutions and every day, every year there are more solutions. Yep. And these days, even the incorporation and everything to start, to literally start a new company, create a, a legal entity, um, you can get it through online services, including as an example, Stripe Atlas um, mm -hmm. will just help you create a company. So yes, there's, there's, there's always more and more infrastructure and the more infrastructure we build, uh, just yeah, the, the more progress can happen. A lot and, of progress and I, I think it turns it's out. Yes. To emphasize the financial infrastructure there. That is not yes. just, you know, you it's, it's, people like to hear about the technology and the science, uh, but also the capitalist aspect of it. That the availability of capital, the the money to put into starting something, 
in order to get it off the ground and the ability to get the finance and, and to raise the finance, the availability of capital and the different instruments of capital that didn't exist before. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the the uh, sort of advent of the joint stock uh, corporation around 1600 or so, right, with the great trading companies, the first stock markets, uh, then the uh, the uh, widespread availability of limited liability corporations in the 1800s, which were really helpful for the railroads, which needed massive amounts of capital. Um, and then kind of in the 20th century, the invention of the venture capital model, all of these things have been yeah, major pieces of kind of financial quote unquote technology. One of the things that I've been looking at the research, I don't know a lot about it yet, but I think it's an interesting area of research is too that corporations when they first started out were mostly started out as like special grants by the king to his favorites. I mean, they were, they were not what you think of as a corporation today. They were these like special favors, like the South Seas Corporation. And they were often, you know, highly corrupt and, and you had to sort of be an insider to get one and, and very limited to, uh, yeah, they weren't just an average person could start a corporation. They were special grants of power by the people yeah. who had political power. And then that's one of the other things that happened is that, you know, as especially in America and in Britain, you began to have that integrated more with uh, a, a pro-individual rights, uh, the idea of natural equality of man and, and everybody having equal rights. Being having that the corporation integrated into that system, where the corporation became something that anybody could do. It wasn't a special grant of power. It was something that was available to to anyone who wanted to start a business. Yeah, and that took a while to really get in place. Um, I mean, it's it's funny because I tend to, um, you know, I I, I tend to uh, I, I used to have a a, so a very naive view of kind of uh, history of, of of this sort of thing that oh. Well, back in the 1800s, um, the economy was pretty free. And then over the course of the 20th century, we've layered on a lot of regulation. And so I, I think of kind of the 20th century as like rise of regulation. Well, the more I've looked into it, the more I've realized how, how naive and actually historically ignorant that is. Actually, through most of the Middle Ages, at least in Europe, you basically needed the king's permission to do almost anything um, to create a market literally, to just help, you know, to have a market, right, to have a fair, to have a, all these corporations had the royal charters, you had the guilds, uh, and, you know, the guild system, and there was just so much was, was restricted and done by permission, not by right. Um, it's, uh, and you're right about the, the early uh, corporations, the early trading companies, quote unquote, were not companies as we think of them today. Um, in fact, some of them were really more like merchant guilds, uh, who seem, as, as far as I can understand, were established for the purpose of uh, having a monopoly. So there would yeah. pretty much always be a monopoly granted on uh, trade. It turns out back in the 1500s and so, uh, the, the, as, at least in Britain, the kings would just grant monopolies left and right for pretty mm -hmm. much anything and, and everything they felt like. They had, they had just kind of general arbitrary monopoly power and they, they kind of gave it out all the time. I asked, uh, I asked a, a friend of mine, Professor uh, Anton Howes, uh, why, why were they doing that? Why did they give monopolies out all the time? Why was this just like the default? And he had a, an interesting hypothesis, which is that um, it was essentially the lack of bureaucratic technology. Uh, they want, so they wanted to tax the trade. Right. Um, but they, didn't they literally didn't have the bureaucracy to track and manage all, you know, dozens or hundreds of merchants who are all trading on a certain route. So they did a simple thing. They said, they essentially outsourced it. They said, okay, look, we're just gonna give a monopoly to one group. Y'all create a group, 
you, you make a merchant company, we'll give you the monopoly. You can let in whoever you want. Now we have one person to tax or, you know, we have one group to tax. Yeah, so is. we're going we're gonna to give you the monopoly. We tax you really easy for us. And then you can, you know, but these, but these early companies, like I believe the Muscovy company in the form of the 1500s would, would sort of be a, 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 essentially I said, like a, like a merchant's guild, a bunch of independent merchants who had their own independent stock and capital, and they would go out and sort of trade on their own accounts. It wasn't a single uh, company or corporation the way we think of it today that has an ownership structure and a, and a, and a stock's capital and so forth. It was more like a cartel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly, so, um, so, so this sort of thing evolved. It's interesting to me also, by the way, how late it was that actually this, uh, this sort of by right corporation um, d developed in the, you uh, made a, a, a reference to, I think the South Sea company or South, the South Sea bubble of 1720. Right. Um, after that, uh, there was, that was such a, a scandal and a fiasco that Britain actually, as I recall, outlawed uh, or, you know, they, they, they revoked the, the, the right to create corporations and it went back to charter for over a hundred years. It was, uh, so when Bolton and Watt in the late 1700s created a company, it was a, it was not a corporation. It was a partnership. Right. It was a, it was a partnership structure between the two of them. Um, and it wasn't until the early 1800s that once again, anybody could just create a corporation by filing documents and by right rather than by special charter. So it is amazing sometimes what people can actually get done in the absence of all of these of these uh, uh, rights and freedoms. But but obviously then having having the freedom for anyone to do that, not making it a special privilege, just makes everything go faster and smoother. And then related to that, of course, is intellectual property rights, of which yes. you know which were practically non-existent, <laughs> uh, and, and to the extent they existed, were in that same model of okay, I'm going to grant you a monopoly on this. Uh, yes. And the development of intellectual copyrights, intellectual property and patents and copyrights has it also has this huge effect. I mean, I, I see it now, one of my side interests is classical music. And, you know, there's all these stories of these 18th century, great 18th century composers who basically die penniless, even though they had these tremendous hits that, every, you know, that everybody loved that were played throughout Europe, but they had no copyrights. And so, you know, you know, today, you know, uh, uh, Luigi Boccherini's minuet, you know, he would be living in, in opulence for the rest of his life on the royalties from that, given how popular it was. But at the time, there was no such thing. You had to seek out a royal patron because you had to have, you know, you, you had no real strong way to get a stream of money coming from the, the things you were creating. Uh, so, you know, that also makes a huge difference when it comes to technology and to progress, not just in the arts, but in technology and, and everywhere else. Yeah, and patents in Britain, at least, evolved out of uh, that monopoly power that we were just mm -hmm. discussing. Again, the, the monarchs used to give monopolies for pretty much anything. Um, they would give monopolies in particular to, uh, you know, tradesmen or craftsmen who maybe had a particular technique or a particular type of product they were making. They get a monopoly to be the only one allowed to make it. And it was in the early 1600s that um, uh, Cook, uh, Edward Cook, wrote this now famous uh, statute on monopolies, where he essentially said, we got to stop doing all these monopolies. We, this is not good for trade. This is not good for the artisans. This is not good for England. Except, he said, the one thing that's still legit that we ought to keep giving monopolies for is if somebody actually has a new invention. That's okay, right? So for so he just carved that out. He said, Every, all the other monopolies should go away, but this this one is justified and should remain. Now, there are some other precursors of, of patent law, I believe maybe going back to uh, like um, uh, Renaissance Italy uh, or, or maybe it was Venice. I'm trying to remember exactly where it was. I, I still need to go research and, 
and dig up all the origins and history of this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's a controversial topic. There seem to be not many defenders of patents out there. Um, everybody on, on multiple sides of the political spectrum seems to kind of generally be down on them. And there's a lot of uh, sort of research saying they weren't all that important. They caused more trouble than they were worth. Uh, there was such an explosion of innovation after the patent expires, et cetera, and so forth. Um, I haven't researched this to, uh, you know, to my satisfaction yet. But it's, um, you know, it's certainly the case that if you just look back at, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, in a lot of the 17 and 1800s, at least, and, and even early 1900s, um, and it's even continuing today, like a lot of important stuff does get patented. And it seems to me to be, an, if nothing else, an important financial model, um, you know, the, the so this is, this is maybe a little bit of a paradox. The inventors themselves... Um, are often not driven by uh, uh, business prospects, by the, by the prospect of riches, by you know, being able to own the patent and so forth. The inventors, many times, they're really just geeks. They're, you know, like me, they're technology uh, you know, people who really just want to invent for the fun of inventing and they want to solve hard problems and they would love for their work to be used. Uh, you know, and I mean, Jonas Salk, when he, you know, was, was funded by a nonprofit to create the polio vaccine, uh, you know, he didn't want to patent it at all. He was, his view was, I've created this thing and now let me give it to the world. Uh, and when someone asked, you know, who owns the patent, he just said, oh, you know, the people own the patent. Could you, could you patent the sun? Uh, you know, that, that was his attitude. Um, but without uh, patents, I, I fail to see how we could get nearly, I mean, so the thing about all these inventors is they still got to pay the rent. Right. Um, so who pays for the, and, and they need a laboratory and the materials and supplies. So, you and, know, and to produce the thing, you need a factory, you need uh, materials, yes, you need workers, exactly. et so, so this stuff doesn't happen without investment, without finance, capital, and, and resources going into it. And that investment needs to make a profit. So, um, I mean, not always, sometimes you get nonprofit funding, but, you know, we wouldn't have nearly what we have today if, if it weren't for uh, the you know mechanisms of you know for-profit mechanisms of financing and and patents just seem essential to that. So uh, I, I have not heard anyone explain how we would actually have a workable system that devotes resources to invention and uh, commercialization. You know without something like patents. Right, right. Now um, we've talked a lot about why we should be studying progress. So now you've actually done something about it, <laughs> and you started a new organization. Now you've got a, you got some funding for this, some support for this. You started a new organization. Can you tell me what that organization is and what it is that you're doing? Yeah, sure. Organization might be a little grandiose. It's really just me, um, but I do <laughs> I do have a website and and something of a brand. It's called the Roots of Progress. Um, and the website is at rootsofprogress.org. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, I, it's where I publish uh, notes and essays about uh, progress and my, you know, sort of my research and writing and also where I put up all my, my talks and things. And uh, yeah, so I, I am now doing this full time as of uh, about nine months ago. Um, and I am supported right now by uh, a number of grants, including from uh, uh, Emergent Ventures, which is a fund uh, run by uh, economist uh, Tyler Cowen at the Mercatus mm. Center of George Mason University. Um, also, uh, Open Philanthropy and a couple of other uh, effective altruist funds um, are sort of have, uh, have, have, have written me some grants to do what I'm doing, at least, uh, you know, seed, seed capital. Um, so so that's, uh, that's what I'm doing. The other major kind of uh, uh, venture or project that I have launched recently 
um, is an online learning program aimed at high school students uh, in the history of technology called Progress Studies for Young Scholars. And uh, I've launched that as a joint venture with a private school called Higher Ground Education, uh, mostly focused on sort of Montessori schools uh, and, and also with a Montessori-inspired high school brand, the Academy of Thought and Industry. Uh, they actually reached out to me to create this online uh, uh, summer program, which has been successful enough that we're now continuing it into the fall and beyond. And uh, so that is, that's the other major thing that I'm, that I'm working on right now. Well, well, that sounds great. So what, what sort of things are you doing for what sort of, you have online classes for the kids, you have readings, you have, uh, what, what sort of topics do you try to introduce them to? Is it just stories of the great inventors or uh, how, yeah, so how's the structure? Yeah, the format, so first off, it's a six-week uh, course uh, for the summer program, and then uh, with daily sort of readings and uh, discussion, there is, uh, it's, a, it's about a two-hour day commitment, so you get, the students get an hour a day, roughly, of a, of a reading with, uh, that, that I've written up with links to articles and video, and then there's a one-hour live uh, discussion and Q&A section with uh, the, the instructor and a small cohort up to about, you know, 10 students. Um, and then uh, when, uh, you know, when we go into the fall, it'll be more of a homeschooling or after school type program. Uh, the curriculum covers the basic uh, history of technology. It's an overview, um, obviously can't be comprehensive, but we, we do try to give a, a comprehensive overview framework of how to understand the major advancements that made the modern world, that made industrial civilization and gave our modern standard of living. And, uh, and then we go into certain case studies, uh, you know, in depth within, within each of those areas. So we start with a couple days on just the history of global living standards. What was it like to live as a nomadic hunter-gatherer? Uh, what was life like in the ancient and medieval worlds? And then, you know, what is this modern phenomenon that uh, Deirdre McCluskey calls the great enrichment? Once we've looked at that for sort of context and motivation, we go uh, you know, through the major areas of technology. We look at manufacturing. How did we make more physical stuff, more goods, um, more buildings and infrastructure and so forth, primarily through improved materials and improved processes, especially automation. Um, we look at agriculture. How did we solve the problems of fertility? How did we solve the labor problem by mechanization? Um, uh, we invented refrigeration and freezing in order pre to preserve the food and create a supply chain and, and so forth. Um, we look at transportation and the evolution from, you know, railroads to, uh, you know, to cars, to airplanes. Uh, we look at energy, which, of course, is fundamental to, to all of these things. Um, we look at uh, infectious disease and, and how we mostly, obviously not completely uh, in, in the days of COVID, but mostly conquered that through um, sanitation, vaccines, antibiotics. Uh, we look at information and especially communications and, and how that all converged in computers and the Internet. And then our final module is on uh, safety. How do we, uh, what are the safety technologies that protect us against the hazards both of, of nature and of technology itself? And then the final wrap up of the course is looking to the future uh, and, and asking the students, how do you want to play a part in this story? You know, what, what do you want your part in the story of progress to be? Um, really kind of driving home the point that progress, uh, you know, only happens when each new generation picks up the torch and decides to carry it forward. And, uh, and really trying to encourage them to do that. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, there's been sort of a drumbeat out there. I think Peter Thiel has been talking about this a little bit and some conservative commentators talking about that we're in an era of stagnation. And, you know, we, we, we don't have flying cars, but, we, you know, we have Twitter instead of flying cars is sort of the, uh, the complaint, right? It's, we're, we've, we've spent too much time moving bits around and moving information around because that's easy 
but we're not doing the hard stuff like building the flying cars. Now I have some skepticism about how practical flying cars really are ever going to be. Sure. But um, I used to be very, very upset that we didn't have flying cars. You know, it's the 21st century. We don't have flying cars yet. I looked into a little bit more and there's, there's a lot of complications, a lot of reasons why we don't have them. But what do you think about this idea? Are we in a period of stagnation? Are we, you know, are we doing too much of the easy, oh, we have a new app now that, you know, and, and not building enough things or inventing enough things? Yeah. Um, so I, I have some sympathy for it. I think there's some evidence uh, for this. I mean, uh, so first off, to be clear, I don't think anybody is really claiming that progress has ground to a complete halt. Uh, but the claim, the, the plausible claim is that uh, we have slowed down a bit, that we uh, maybe we stepped on the brake, maybe we let off the accelerator, whatever metaphor you want to use, but that we're not growing quite as fast. And I think you can see this in the GDP statistics. Um, you can also see it a little more qualitatively if you if you look broadly at, um, you know, just try to count up the major inventions or uh, for that matter, the the how many different frontiers of technology are we making dramatic progress on at once uh if you could look at the period the last 50 years let's say period from about 1970 to today and you compare that to the previous you know from 1920 to 1970 or from for that matter from 1870 to 1920 kind of look at these 50 year periods um you know in between 1870 and 1920 we invented uh the telephone um, including long distance uh, telephone service, the entire electrical industry, the generator, the motor, the light bulb, all the electrification uh, of the cities. Um, the internal combustion engine was perfected and we got the, uh, the automobile and the airplane. Um, the the uh, vaccines, the first engineered vaccines, the first vaccines since Edward Jenner, you know, 100 years ago were, were invented. The germ theory was finished. Um, the very first antibiotics, although not, uh, you know, uh, really powerful and successful antibiotics were, were created, but the very first one, salversan for syphilis was, was discovered, et cetera. It's just all these different things on, on many different fronts. It's really, I mean, the, the assembly line, right, Ford and the Model T, all, all of this stuff, right? In the last 50 years, we have gotten some amazing inventions, no doubt, but they've mostly been clustered in sort of one, on one frontier, which is information and computing. Yeah. Um, I don't think that this... Uh, I think it's unfair to say we've been distracted by bits and forgot about the atoms. I mean, that's just not a, look, bits are really important. And, and, the, and, and you're right. The flying, you know, the flying cars are sort of the wrong. I mean, I think the flying cars versus 140 characters is, is, is a pithy quip uh, that where the concretes are maybe not spot on, but, but, but maybe there is something to the, to the spirit of it. Um, we did not get nuclear power uh, for instance, you know, running the world. Um, we did not get uh, a space program that, you know, really, right, the space program kind of uh, languished for decades. For that matter, supersonic, uh, you know, air travel well, see, you know, I, came I, and then it went. Yeah, supersonic air travel back. is a good one, yes. But yeah, right. I also, there are some technologies like supersonic air travel where we had it and then we decided, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And nobody really seemed to want to try or nuclear where we have all the technology to have nuclear power plants. We know how to build them. We know how to build better ones than we used to. It's just that nobody wants to do it. And yeah. people want to prevent you from doing it. At least in the US, yeah. nobody wants to allow it to happen. Uh, yeah. so malaria, that, like why, why is malaria still, you know, still a worldwide, I mean, it's not a worldwide problem, but it is still a major killer uh, in the world. Like, okay, back in the 40s, you know, we found DDT. 
Now there are reasons we got rid of DDT for better or for worse, but mm -hmm. we still don't have a replacement. Like why haven't we, you know, why are we still, you know, why are we still fighting these things? So there, so there, I think there is like a, a, a number of things that you can point to. We say, look, we should have had this. What happened? Not to mention in the 1930s, we could build the Empire State Building in like a little over a year, right? And the Golden Gate Bridge in just a few years. And today, just to build, you know, one subway line in New York City takes like decades. Um, and this is, this is well documented. The cost and speed of construction, uh, of, of infrastructure and buildings and so forth in the U.S. Is, has gotten really bad. Um, and, uh, and by the way, it's not this bad everywhere in the world. Like the right, U.S. Right, is, yeah. is, 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 pretty, is, is on a bad end of the spectrum. So um, I think there's a good number of things to look at of, of, you know, that really do indicate that we're not moving as fast as we could be and should be. And, and maybe not as fast as we used to be. And I think there's, there's really good questions to ask there about why that's going on. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think there's, there's perhaps a political aspect, which is, you know, tremendous amounts of regulation. And you talk about, you know, it's harder to build things. I know a little bit about that, that, you know, there's, there's a lot more regulation in terms of construction. And, you know, uh, every, every, I mean, it's sort of like every little local area has a literal five-year plan. <laughs> You know, in five-year plan, you think that would put a sort of set off alarm bells that we used to that phrase, but they have literal five-year plans saying, well, we'll allow you to build this and we'll allow you to build that. And if you build this, well, you have to do all these different things and you've, you know, you spent $150,000 before a shovel hits the dirt, right? If you're building a, like a private home, you know, right. you could be, you spend a lot of money before the, a shovel even hits the dirt because of all the regulations and restrictions that are put onto it. And then people complain, how come there's not more affordable housing, right? Right. Exactly. I, I, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, yeah. you know, we are the epitome of this of this exact problem. It's virtually impossible to build anything. Yeah, yeah. And so part of it is that so part of it is the political aspect of having regulations and you would talk about nuclear power. That's a clear example where there was a hysteria over literal, I mean, literally the irrational fear of nuclear power that that settled in politically and made it impossible. You know, there was like, an, I think George W. Bush during his administration made an effort to loosen up the regulations that lasted a couple of years and then it petered out. So there are certain things where it's like, we just simply, we have the technology, we're simply decided we're not, we don't want to allow anybody to use it. And that's, you know, and again, that's something that's worse in the US than anywhere else in the world. Um, but uh, I also want to look at the cultural aspect of this. And that's why I find it so interesting that you're doing something for educating uh, people in the history of progress because, like you said, you know, we, we got progress partly because we decided it was possible and that we wanted it and that that became the rallying cry. You know, it, it became, if you were an idealistic young man in the 18th century infused with enlightenment ideas, the idea of let's use science and technology to change the way people live and, and create all sorts of new things and improve the lot of humanity, that was the big idealistic crusade. And Culturally, that has really faded. I mean, I, I like to point to this a, a study done a number of years ago by a, uh, a couple of social psychologists who talked about how, well, you know, it used to be we had, in terms of what's the central idea of a society, what's, what gives people a sense of, of value and meaning in their lives, it says, well, we used to have a culture of honor, you know, where your value and meaning came from having your reputation, your honor, your reputation in the eyes of others. Then we had a culture of dignity where it didn't matter so much what other people thought. It was your dedication to your uprightness and morality within yourself that gave you a sense of meaning. And they say, now we have a culture of victimhood 
right? Where, yeah, and you see this now, I think that's actually the, when I think about it, I, I you know, spend uh, probably too much of my time talking about politics, a, a field where, where progress generally does not occur. Um, and uh, in there, I've, the thing I've noticed recently is, you know, we're all obsessed, absolutely obsessed with the culture wars. And the big thing of the culture wars in the Trump era is that the conservatives decided that we can jump in on victimhood too. You know, so we're going to claim that we're the real victims because we're the deplorables who are looked down upon by those coastal elites. And that sort of populism that becomes also, you know, everybody's competing over who's the biggest victim. And people are so obsessed with that and it takes up so much time. And, you know, if you're on Twitter, it takes up a lot of time and, and attention. Um, and instead of looking at, you know, could we, instead of being a culture of victimhood, could we become a culture of achievement where you're worth and value and the thing that gets you attention is look at what i've created yeah uh that sounds fantastic to me i think you're so you're, you're absolutely right that i think there are sort of deep cultural factors uh, in how we view progress uh going back to something we said earlier do is it viewed as possible is it viewed as desirable um and is it uh is it viewed with uh uh, does it have, um, I mean, I, I, the, I hate the term social status, uh, but, you know, maybe we can use terms like honor and prestige. Um, yeah, yeah. Is it, is it seen as um, a great thing to do? Um, right. is, it, is it something that where you get a feeling of moral worth uh, from it? And, um, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely think um, we, we, we do need to bring more of that back. Um, or maybe, or maybe find a you know, as, as you're saying, like craft a, a, a sort of a new and different kind of culture for the future, a culture of achievement. Um, yeah, I absolutely love that. I'm thinking of um, I'm not going to be able to recall the exact quote, but uh, there was a time when they erected uh, was a statue of of James Watt, and yeah. there was a quote about uh, you know how it's part of the reason that they wanted to do that was to show that an inventor could be as much of a benefactor to mankind as any statesman or warrior, you know, or poet. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think. Or um, in the National Portrait Gallery in, in Washington, DC, one of my favorite things there is they have a, a, 19, a painting done by a 19th century artist called Men of Progress. And it's a, you know, a couple of people you'd know, I think Samuel F. B. Morse in there is in there, the inventor of the telegraph. Uh, a lot of people you wouldn't know but who were no, well known in the, uh, in the 19th century as you know, inventors of machines that made uh, you know, big threshing machines and all these things that made a big difference and, and different kinds of steel making processes. So things that made a huge difference at the time. And this was, you know, they were given the, sort of the grand treatment that you would give to the signers of the Declaration of Independence. You know, that's sort of this tableau of all these men. You know, it's, of course, they were never all in the same room at the same time. But the painter went around and, and uh, met all of them and, and uh, did portraits of them and then put them all together in one room, often with their invention or a drawing or something like that of their invention off to their side. And that's that sort of thing of glorifying, look at all these people who created these amazing things and giving that, you know, setting the example that, the, hey, this is something that is, I think I like the phrase value and meaning, something that gives value and meaning to life. And that is something that, that, that we should be praising and, and holding up as an example for other people to follow. And I think yeah, that uh, we're not focused on that enough. And I think maybe that's part of what is slowing us down or, or at least not making us not move forward into the future as fast as we could. 
Yeah. Uh, another example I think of is uh, in Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, he, he mentions that we have uh, the, the, our societal collective amnesia for the conquerors of disease. Yeah. And he mentions, he says, in my, in, he says, when I was a, a kid, a popular genre of books for children was the heroic biography of a medical pioneer. Uh, such as, and then he, he rattles off a list of, you know, eight or nine or 10 names. And I remember the first time reading that, realizing I don't even know most of these names, you yeah. know, who they were or even what they did, you know, let alone anything about their, about their actual story or, or biography. Yeah. Th this, t this time of year, I'm usually on the warpath about uh, raising the profile of Willis Carrier, uh, the inventor of modern air conditioning. And you're an amazing yeah, yes. guy because, you know, you think, okay, well, Carrier, the company still exists today. Um, he invented an air conditioner. He didn't just invent an air conditioner. He invented the theory of air conditioning, right? There's a whole, a whole field called psychrometrics. I didn't even know it existed until I started researching. It's not psychometrics, it's psychrometrics. I don't huh. know exactly what the exact gr Greek root of that is, but it's basically the science behind air conditioning. Wow. <laughs> Combining temperature and humidity and all these different things. And he invented all of that. He wrote a paper, you know, explaining all of that and figured it all out in the process of inventing, you know, air conditioning machines. So, you know, and of course at this time of year, <laughs> especially if you live south of the Mason-Dixon line as I do now, uh, uh, you really get an appreciation for what this does for us. And I, I remember seeing a, somebody did some figures that uh, before the advent of modern air conditioning, there was about a 15% gap between the productivity of factories in the North and factories in the South. And wow. it's generally, you know, a certain, a large percentage of that is attributed to the heat. That when the mm -hmm. heat gets too high, you know, you get to 90, 95 degrees in the south and you don't have air conditioning, people are not able to work as efficiently. Yeah. You know, I noticed that, you, that the way you survive down here in, in, in the middle of summer is you walk slowly, right? So, <laughs> uh, and, and then that, that difference, that gap between the north and south tends to disappear a little, uh, or, or most of it disappears after the advent of modern air conditioning in part because you can run a factory in Tennessee and not have everybody sweltering in the middle of July. So it's just a tremendous yeah. thing that you know, it, it adds productivity to the economy, it adds comfort and productivity to all, to all of our own lives. And but I think most people, you know, they, most people don't know that, um, uh, uh, that who Willis Carrier was or what he did. And that's right. the sort of thing where, you know, I think, we're seeing this actually with coronavirus. You mentioned that, you know, we've conquered infectious disease, but you know, we still have a problem with it. I think part of the problem we have with coronavirus is that it was so long since we had a real pandemic. You know, it's really since 1918, the flu pandemic. It, it was so long, we, we conquered it so thoroughly that people forgot what had been accomplished. They just took it for granted that there isn't a pandemic every couple of years. And you know, if, if people knew the history of it, they'd have a better appreciation for what we're facing now and what we have to do to get out of it and, uh, and, and, for, and a better appreciation for all the things that have been done to, to keep us from having to go through this you know, a lot more often. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. So we, we talked a little bit earlier about the, you know, the idea that progress is possible and desirable. Um, I think you know, in today's world, it's very clear to people that technological progress is possible in the sense that, yes, we can invent things um, and we can, we can gain new capabilities and new powers. Um, I think where a lot of concern comes from is uh, people are worried that this would not be desirable, 
that that inventing new things is actually just going to make the world worse that gaining new powers is just going to give us new ways to destroy ourselves. Uh, you know, they look at, I mean, for instance, you know, look at the, um, you know, the, everything the technology industry or the, the information technology, computing and the internet uh, technology has done for us for the last 50 years. And now people look at it and say, well, but it has led to a loss of privacy. It has led to distraction, uh, digital distraction. It has led to isolation and loneliness. It is led to, has led to political divisiveness. It has allowed uh, foreign, uh, uh, you know, uh, nations to interfere in our elections, and you know, et cetera, and so forth. And so then, when you tell them, "Hey, great news, everybody! Uh, you know, gene editing is on the horizon," they don't all <laughs> say, "Great, I can't wait." They say, "Oh my God, are you sure? Maybe we should just burn it all down before you get there." Yeah, uh, uh, and there's a whole genre where whenever um, those people. I tried the, the name is temporarily escaping me. The people put out those those videos of those new robots that they're building. And it's oh, like, yeah, oh, the robots right. can climb a ladder yeah, yeah. Boston, now. The Boston Dynamics. Uh, the Boston Dynamics. Uh, yeah, every time Boston right. Dynamics puts out a new, video, a new video, everybody has to joke about, okay, the robots are going to come kill us all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I think, I think our the, science fiction hasn't been serving us terribly well <laughs> uh, with this respect. It's true. Actually, I think science fiction is one, is a key place where you can actually see the change in the culture you know, going from um, sort of more, this is anecdotal, I haven't really kind of researched this, but it seems to me that, uh, you know, that we had sort of more optimistic um, sci-fi and that we've now got, you know, now we're in a world where there's sort of more dystopian visions of the future and, and yeah. kind of more pessimistic. Well, well Stuart, Stuart Hayashi, who's, uh, you probably know if he's on Facebook pretty prolifically, he, he drew my attention to something called Edison Aids, which were these like little children's stories put out, I think under, under Edison's, under the rubric of Edison's company, where there were adventure stories that involved somehow invention and technology being used to solve a problem. And this was sort of, you know, a, a part of the culture 100 to 150 years ago, uh, based on Ed, Edison's, you know, huge celebrity at the time. And, you know, very optimistic and benevolent view of technology and progress that, you know, I think we have very much turned turns dark on that. I mean, even, even Star Trek, which is famously the most optimistic of the, uh, of the science fiction franchises, has had sort of gotten the, the dark and gritty, uh, more malevolent future kind of outlook. And, and I think that's definitely something that, that needs to be turned around uh, because when we, as you said, when we think the progress is possible, we're much more likely to actually create it. Yeah, right. exactly. So just to wrap up, tell us again how we can, how we can find your, the things you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my website is the Roots of Progress at rootsofprogress.org. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter where I'm fairly prolific. Uh, my uh, handle is Jason Crawford. And if you want to check out the uh, online learning program, yeah. Progress Studies for Young Scholars is at uh, progressstudies.school. We're aiming it at the high school level right now, but we've got enough interest from adults that we're uh, looking into launching maybe an adult uh, version of the course in the fall. So uh, and, adults and, and consider alike, middle school too, because you know I've got some I've got some kids who are a little before the high school age. I'd like to start showing them some of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, just, absolutely. I would say for for parents of younger uh, kids, go ahead and sign up for the mailing list. Um, at some point, I think we will uh, we will perhaps be releasing some of the materials, and uh, that might be something where you can kind of pick and choose what would be age appropriate, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, bits to start sharing. As it is, I took advantage of the last year or so to show them a lot of the Apollo. Uh, uh, a lot of stuff about the Apollo mission and the moon landing and all that sort of thing. And we built a, a Lego Saturn V rocket and all that sort of thing. So awesome. Great. <laughs> yeah, and using right. advantage, advantage of those right. opportunities, those anniversaries to really, you know, give them an appreciation for what was created. Well, I really, I think that's a great 
thing that you're doing and I really appreciate it. And I um, want to direct people to go check it out and see what they can get out of it. And good luck in expanding that. Thank you. Thank I really you. enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm Rob Trzyski. This is Salon of the Refused. My guest today has been Jason Crawford, uh, technology entrepreneur and uh, a exponent of the cause of progress. Uh, if you like this program, you can follow us on YouTube. You can follow us, uh, follow the podcast. Uh, you can support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. And of course, for more ideas and analysis, check out my newsletter, the Trzyski Letter, www.trzyskiletter.com. Thank you for listening.